You're listening to the 10th episode of Season 3 of the Wicked Podcast. I'm Mike Moore. This podcast is about strict, rules-focused Christianity not working, but it is not an attack on faith. It's about trying to maintain some connection to God, despite everyone. It's also about depression, suicides, both consummated and ones only intended, words, and music. Each episode is me pontificating and ruminating around a song from my concept album, Death in Tiny Spoonfuls. Episode 10, Why Not? I was never sure where all the Christian joy was supposed to come from in concrete terms. Joy for having been a dirty, rotten sinner, but having gotten away with it through the work of Jesus? Joy in standing at God's elbow one day and watching the world burning and all the nasty sinners in it burning too? Joy in knowing something most people didn't know, so knowing better than most people. Joy in bringing a message of hell and sin and skin-of-the-teeth escape and being ignored by people who therefore clearly deserve the former rather than the latter, with the hammer of the Lord scattering the wicked down below you both. The joy of being one of the very few people in human history that God had chosen to save. The masochistic joy of taking to new heights the action of hating yourself and denying yourself almost everything you suspected might give you a tiny bit of pleasure. The joy of being so spiritually enlightened as to look at career and personal life, family recreation, entertainment, artistic expression, and all of that, and see it all, in the words of the Apostle, as shit, excusing my Greek. The joy of being so much more than just yet another church group, but in fact being the only Christians on earth obeying God and the Bible each Sunday? Was it the joy of calling to mind the moment you decided to follow Jesus and just holding on that moment for the rest of your life, returning to it in your thoughts over and over until you died? Was it all the imagining of all of that future joy in heaven that we'd been banking for our whole life by denying ourselves pleasure down here? It wasn't joy in the mellifluousness of the singing or the depth and height of the Bible teaching. It wasn't joy in conversation with the people there. The key figure involved in kicking me out assured me that if he had had his choice of Christian group rather than obediently leaving that to his God, he certainly would not have chosen to spend the rest of his life in eternity with the folks in our group. Now, some people will tell you they're just happy people, and maybe they are. And some of us are very much just not happy people. I don't think it's a choice either, and I'm not sure how fixable it is. Curry, having had a liver transplant to fight bile duct cancer, claims to have never struggled with suicidal ideation. My perspective on it's probably not going to be helpful to someone that has dealt with depression, but I'll say I've never, ever asked myself those questions. I've never said, why am I here? I've never felt suicidal and and I've never indulged. I've never not indulged is the wrong word. I've never had to struggle with those thoughts. Um, To me, it's very obvious that, you know, that I I definitely consider life a privilege and a gift. Mm -hmm. And um, the idea of ending it prematurely is, is completely unfathomable to me. Um, And which is why I battled so hard when I was uh, what I was and perhaps still am somewhat dealing with a life threatening situation. Why I, you know, it's to me, the concept of not fighting for your life is so alien Mm -hmm. that I can't even make sense of it, let alone the thought of ending your own. I don't remember how old I was the first time I had thoughts of ending my life. When I first felt like I needed a really solid, emotionally fulfilling reason not to, the idea came to me in times when I felt like too much was being asked of me and not enough allowed me. 
You won't let me live. You won't let me make any of my own choices. You control and limit everything. I would snarl inwardly as a child. I should just kill myself. That would be a choice. That would be taking back control. That would show you. For me, that's what suicidal ideation has most often been. A venomous desire to selfishly hit back at a world that isn't letting me live a life. To take the reins and make people see how much they were making my young life suck and maybe make them feel sorry. Maybe make them care. Maybe hurt them like they were hurting me. Really mature stuff. Very healthy. Like when I was six and feeling like my parents had simply gone too far this time, in fencing me off from doing every single thing I wanted to do, smacking me repeatedly with the Bible paddle for thinking and feeling things, for arguing about the lack of fairness, need, and sense in the ever-expanding list of unwritten rules we groaned under. I announced I was running away from home. My parents laughed at me, but... I obviously intended to leave that crushing, controlling, joyless house. I really meant it. When the time came, my mother gigglingly handed me my coat, and my nerve failed me, and I hated her a bit for giggling. I think it was Canadian January. Suicidal ideation was like that, too, for me, only with death as the way to run away from home, as it were. By the time I was 16, it was a deeply ingrained pattern of thinking. It was an escape hatch. It was going to happen, I just knew it, with how I was being pushed and crushed and shoved into these molds. If I couldn't be me, eventually I wasn't going to be able to be at all. And again, I was one of your best friends. We had a different kind of relationship. We had, we, I mean, you and I could be fucking mean as fuck to each other. Yeah. Uh, and, and we could also be genuinely caring for each other and every emotion in between there. Uh, I remember not understanding it. Because I'm naturally not depressed. I'm, I, I mean, I don't, I don't relate to depression very well, and and I don't understand it very well. Still to this day, I don't do well with it, mm-hmm. um, and I and I don't have a terrible amount of patience or tolerance for it, mm-hmm. um, because I don't, I don't get it. Yeah. So and I and I struggle with understanding even today. You know what? What of it is self-induced versus chemical versus all the yeah. stuff. And I, I know a number of people that are depressed. Uh, I'm not someone who's very good with it and i'm not someone that's very patient with it but i cared for you we were friends i cared for you as a i mean we were good friends i i had i was concerned for your well-being i remember i remember being very frustrated with it and i remember being very confused by it and not understanding it at all and i remember i obviously was completely unequipped as a young man to do anything about it or be of any use and i probably made it worse but i I remember genuinely i was genuinely wanting to help but I didn't, I didn't know how. Like, I honestly don't I, know it would have helped. And, and, you and know, like, but you know, that's an impossible thing for someone yeah. to say to me because to me, everything can be helped, right? Like that. Look at, looking back, uh, what I came to is it was a confluence of a bunch of things. So there's, there is a genetic predisposition to be depressed. That's just there. Yep. Also in the meeting, um, I had failed to make a place for myself there. I, I, um, I didn't have friends. I remember being really mad at the meeting people and being really mad at your upbringing and sometimes mad at your dad. And for what, in my opinion, in your life up so much that they yeah. were causing this depression. I do remember that. I remember that was part of it. Going, and I remember being mad about that. I remembering, man, if I just had like more normal, what I called normal, uh, and, and a shift that, 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 you know, he wouldn't be struggling with all this kind of stuff. I, because, I mean, I remember specifically remember thinking, how could a dude not 
struggle with some of the shit, you know, that you've gone through. And then, of course, the whole thing surrounding, you know, your the meeting breaking up and, the, and all the stuff that happened to your dad and all the awkward position that put you in and all of that. I remember, I mean, I kind of at some point, was it was almost impossible to keep track of. Yeah. They, there was so much going on so, and, it, and it was very bizarre. But I do remember specifically being angry at the meeting and your dad. I don't remember being mad at your mom. I don't think it's, I don't think I'm capable of being mad at your mom. No. But I remember being mad at your dad and mad for this whole thing and blaming them for you being what I see. I wouldn't have never called it depressed. I would have just called it weird mm-hmm. or being or difficult. I think I would have said, yeah. right? Like, why is Mike being so fucking difficult? It would yeah. have been probably something I would have thought. And, and, and I remember finding it frustrating and not and difficult it, meant that I wouldn't do things. I would stay in my room. Yeah. And yeah, you were just kind of dour and miserable and, you know, and, and, and a little bit difficult to be around and not super fun and, and, or, or not super fun. It'd be difficult to be around and, and difficult to understand. And you would snap at me and I wasn't understanding why. And, yeah. you know, and you would get frustrated with me because you would, you know, and we would get frustrated with each other. But again, a 13, 14, 15 year old young kid, like we're, yeah. is not equipped. And I wasn't particularly mature as a young man. I, I was so ill-equipped to deal with it. Mm-hmm. right like i didn't have any tools to deal with it whatsoever and i didn't really understand it but i my emotion would be surrounding me yes i remember your depression i remember not understanding it i wouldn't have labeled it as depression and i remember it being frustrating and i remember it making me mad that's what i remember cheryl who i encountered on facebook has thoughts on this what is it that makes us think that death's a good idea when we're not naturally there and things aren't working out very well what what makes us feel that urge it's the same that you mentioned the, the the seeking of pleasure. It's the avoidance of displeasure. Um, most people die because they're not enjoying their life at all. In fact, they're pretty miserable and 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 they don't want to continue the misery. And the message that the hard hard message is that when they kill themselves, guess what? They're not killing the misery. They're killing their body, which is the number one vehicle to escape the misery. Mm. So now they're stuck with just the misery that brought on the depression, and they got rid of the number one way to to resolve it, to move on from it. So it, it becomes very difficult when pe- people lose their souls, lose their bodies, to help them get out of the negativity that led to taking their own life. And now we're into Hamlet that, the only reason that he doesn't embrace that sleep is because of what dreams may come. And he doesn't know, so he doesn't want to find out yet. But he finds yes. out soon enough. Um, yes. Because it's a tragedy. We all will. Yeah. We all will. I'd been attending church events only once every month or so by the time I was kicked out in my 20s a couple of years before Doug killed himself. But still, being put in the under-discipline position by my brethren in Nepean made my life a bit different. Hard to imagine nowadays... But in that Victorian group, handshakes were really a thing. And suddenly, at any event with a bunch of Plymouth Brethren people at it, from which I was not banned outright, I had to wonder if anyone was going to avoid shaking my hand, avoid standing near me, or in the case of one wedding of a pair of close friends of mine, ask that I not be in attendance, or else key guests would absent themselves. It was like mean girl stuff at high school, only now there was a church document recommending middle-aged people behave this way if they really love Jesus. Only George looks and acts as much like a leprechaun as Michael Vetter. Michael weighs in. Um, having everybody there kind of with this 
feeling of like, what do we do? This person has killed themselves. Are we, are we allowed to even mourn them? Um, but then again, it's a, it's a meeting funeral and th- there's no, you're not allowed to feel like sad for the person. You know, only two emotions you can have, have. And one is, Oh, I'm so glad they've gone to glory. And the other one is, Oh, here's a great opportunity to preach the gospel. Cause death. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it's death. And, and it's, it's stupid. There's no actual room for mourning that goes on and not that. And to compound it, um, there was, you know, they bring people down from Canada who doesn't even know us to have the funeral because, well, he knew the mother back when she was a, a long time ago and he heard about it and he, you know, wants to be able to help these problem kids. Okay. So that was just very frustrating. And how well did he connect with us in our time of grief? About negative 50, I think, out of 10. I've said before, but maybe you could, uh, Put it, put your perspective. Do you remember his, uh, his approach to dealing with some of us who'd been kicked out? Yes. Not eating with us. Yeah. Um, We're mourning our friend who wouldn't eat with us. Then you got married and he didn't want us to be invited to the wedding either. There was a lot, a lot of turmoil and extricating ourselves from the thought processes. So much of life and Christianity, certainly, as well as most other faiths, including self-help programs and addictions programs, are about how you view yourself and if any of it is negotiable. Kids movie after kids movie presents the lesson that the magic was in the main character all along. If only she hadn't doubted her special, special self. Believe in yourself. We were taught at meeting that the gospel or message of good news, evangelion, if you'd pardon my Greek, was that there was a way to stop viewing yourself as a monster, a pervert, a bad, horrible, horrible failure of a person. This was good news, as many of us wake up many days feeling like this, or certainly come home from work feeling that way. There's a bit of a bait-and-switch going on, though. Our group said they had good news, which would involve them making it possible for strangers walking in off the street to finally feel okay about themselves before God. But the first thing they then inevitably did was sell you on the idea that in fact you were horrible, that you were bad, much worse than you thought, in fact, that you were lacking, that no matter how okay you felt you were, actually you were not good enough, that you were a sinner, had missed the mark like a crooked arrow flying short or wide of the target, that you were scheduled for incineration, that you needed God, and to get to Him, you needed them. They were, obviously, implementing the sales strategy that became ubiquitous in the early 20th century with the advent of radio, television, and movies long seen in newspapers and colored magazines. You know the one. Not getting the girls? Not getting that promotion? Suffering halitosis, an obscure medical-sounding word for bad breath we have popularized expressly for the purposes of this ad? Hairy legs and or pubic area. Sagging skin. Greasy skin. Greasy hair. A belly. Dull, listless hair with no bounce. Foot fungus. Hair with frizz. Acne. Warts or wrinkles. Poor self-image. No confidence. Have we correctly put our finger on something we can make you self-conscious about? There just aren't a whole lot of parts of the Bible primarily designed to make you feel horrible about being a sinner. But we will wrench free from its context every single one like a tooth ripped from its socket and use them all. We'll have children memorizing them from as soon as they can talk. There is none righteous, no, not one. For all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. The plowing of the wicked is sin. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. I would like to be able to say I had to look any of those up, but no. They've been in there for good since before I'd gone to kindergarten. It's like the contest in a book Monty Python put out. Free, Free contest. contest. You, you invent, invent a part of your body you claim smells, and we'll sell you a spray to spray on it to make it stop smelling. smelling. 
Because one thing is clear. You stink, just generally. You're a wretched, rank, that means stinking, unbelieving sinner on a road to a lost eternity of torment in the fiery blackness of hell. But... I've not good news. We have the answer. And... It's free. The answer is following our spiritual lead and attendance here, where we will tell you a whole lot more about how irredeemably bad and lacking and corrupt and unacceptable to God every one of us truly is, down to our very God-created natures, and how God doesn't miss a single thing we ever do wrong. There will also be a little bit tacked on at the end, like an afterthought, about Jesus redeeming us after all, which will no doubt pay off at some point after this life, and which will require the daily, hourly surrender of this one, we can sort your life if you surrender it to us, I mean, to God. Best to just hand it over to us and we'll take care to make sure it doesn't grow or thrive or anything bad like that. A life is like a bomb. There's no safely leaving it alone, so our kindly and personable life disposal experts are here to coach you in weekly, daily, hourly surrendering even the notion of having one. We grew up like that trusting in the straight, narrow, meeting lifestyle to save our souls. Where the message of much of the Bible seemed to be filled with shame, don't be. It's okay. God has made it so. God loves and accepts you just as you are and wants you to know this. What we grew up hearing instead was, are you trying to feel okay about yourself? Don't. That's inappropriate. God rejects and will punish the best person who ever lived and wants us to tell you this. You should tell people this, too. It's the gospel, the good news, the solemn, sobering good news that people will probably hate you for spreading like a shame virus. No amount of godly living, no amount of meeting attendance, Bible reading, and prayer, no standard for a meticulously monk-like life was good enough for them. We all still sucked and needed to feel that hourly. It still amazes me how self-abnegating, downright self-loathing the ceaseless talk of our superstar preachers was, frequently accompanied by levels of behavioral arrogance and feeling entitled to comment upon and control the lives of anyone nearby that few popes, cardinals, bishops, or fascist dictators have since equaled. Kim Jong-un mandates various haircuts to be illegal in North Korea. Winnie the Pooh of China has made it illegal to joke about authority figures and state documents and actions in China. We brethren folk with hairstyle limits and the threat of excommunication for joking with our religious pamphlets can kind of relate to the spirit of all of that. It was the meeting's job to continually remind us that God loved and accepted and did not condemn us, but that we needed to damn well remember to know better than to feel the same way ourselves about ourselves. Angel recalls how boys were raised to view themselves in the cult in which she grew up, the children of God, now creepily renamed the family. You shouldn't be alone with girls because you're a monster, yeah. right? And if you have any sort of sexual feelings, you're a monster. Mm-hmm. And then for me, what I was taught is like, let boys or adults or whoever touch you because they're monsters. And if you say no, then the real monster is going to come out and they will have like a righteous rage given by God to hurt you for rejecting them. And that's just how men naturally are. So you get the, you're a monster, and I get the message also that you're a monster. The dodge was pretty transparent. It's used by abusive parents and husbands and wives the world over. 
Feel bad about yourself? Good. Let me help you with that. Feel worse? Good. Now, in a purely spiritual way, of course, God loves you and considers you absolutely okay in his books, just the way you are, in all your imperfections and sin, but that's spiritually. You know you're not really okay, right? We'll let you catch a glimpse of peace and feeling that theoretical acceptance with God payable after this life, but we will slam that lid shut on your fingers if you try to live a life of your own without us in a way we don't approve of or understand. We will always be here to make you feel like the filthy garbage you and your imperfection and sin are. You may not actually end up in hell after death, but we'll provide you a reasonable facsimile right now. No waiting. Our most godly five-year-olds know how to weaponize shame and stick it right in there between your floating ribs with a single sentence if you get too cocky. And that's what love looks like. This was appealing to human nature. It couldn't just be good news or a gift. What did we have to do? Well, in the words of the Northern Pikes, we had to... Remember shame when it's time to... We had to go to meeting all the time, never cheating on the meeting with anything fun instead, nor stand up Jesus who died for us and was waiting at the hall for us to show up in our business casual best. And best of all, we got to criticize people who weren't as dutiful as we were. That wasn't only okay, it was service to God. We weren't supposed to listen to stand-up comics back in the day. In my early 20s, I saw one on Curry's TV, who I wish I could remember the name of so I could put him on in here. He basically came out and said, Hi, how you doing? How many of you folks are Catholics? How many survived Catholic school? How about those nuns, right? Me. I'm just kidding. I'm Jewish. Same thing though, right? We'll give you a whole bunch of shame and guilt for your whole life and then promise to help you get rid of it. So stick with us. I'd say that the innovation of Catholicism and other Christian groups was to add a lot more fear in there with that guilt and shame already amply weaponized in Jewish homes everywhere. A uniquely Christian fear, based mainly in Jesus' fiery rhetoric. Fear of an afterlife that Judaism doesn't really comment upon much at all. Fear of a sort of ministry of afterlife reckoning with departments and sub-departments of ironically chosen torments envisioned by Virgil, a Roman, and cribbed by Dante, an Italian fan of his and depicted forever after in every movie ever, just like that's what's in the Bible. Our meeting was very judgmental of other groups for allegedly teaching that you needed to do anything beyond what Jesus had already done to avoid hell for allegedly teaching that you needed a priest to confess to or you'd end up in purgatory or hell, for allegedly teaching that you needed to be baptized to go to heaven or that you could accept Jesus only to lose your seat in heaven by sinning. Well, we kind of taught that you needed to attend meeting to be really saved properly. If you stopped attending, our first question was if you were or had ever been really bound for glory to begin with. This wasn't in the Bible, nor did we want to admit to believing it, but like with so many things, this sure didn't stop us. Saved by grace, maybe, but blessed by works, certainly. Apart from with Jesus and eternal damnation and all that, if you did a single non-brethren thing Thursday, you were forcing God to simply have to punish you. What other choice did he have left to him? It was like with your parents. If you did anything wrong at all, they then had to punish you, lest they be making a mistake of their own, putting them next in line to reap the turd wind. 
As a toddler, my parents, keeping to the meeting script, told me how I was a horrible sinner, bad, not good enough, with an appointment to be punished unimaginably, not just today, but for all eternity after life by God himself. Then the acceptance of God was grudgingly, provisionally showed to us from time to time, but kept locked away in a desk, subject to being chucked in the bin at a moment's notice. Charlie Little was a great guy, with a great speaking voice, a really nice guy, when I had conversations with him. But hear him almost slip up here and suggest that if you deviate from obedience to God, by which he meant the brethren lifestyle, God will just walk away from you and toss you to the curb, like your assembly certainly will, and then half take it back, mid-sentence. For never say that you're walking with God if you're going in a path of disobedience. God will never uh, walk with you in that path, or he'll never leave you, but you'll never enjoy his presence if you're going on in a path of disobedience. If you don't tow the brethren line, God can't walk with you anymore in that path. Oh, he won't forsake you and walk away from you. He will just stop walking with you. If you go down those paths of pop culture pleasure and in-fashion iniquity, you're on your own. God won't forsake you, but you can forsake him. Then you'll be walking alone. That idea that God is always with us, always accepts us, even if we screw up, would have made it hard to control our behavior. So we didn't go there often. It's like the Bible was trying to say God made our sometimes making mistakes okay, non-crucial, fixable, redeemable, and the meeting needed us to live very much as if they weren't any of that at all. There were no take-backs in the meeting. To this day, although I apologize and say when I'm wrong, I do not generally ask for forgiveness and certainly never expect any from anyone, and I'm always shocked and confused when it is offered. Forgiveness does not compute. First, I fight like the very devil with no expectation of forgiveness when I'm accused of anything, and then I apologize, filled with the knowledge that having made a mistake, that's it for me, because that's how it is at meeting. I apologize to everyone at meeting for having written the offending pamphlet before and after being excommunicated and shunned and was clearly told that my apology was accepted, but that I was done. Nothing to ever be forgotten. Me never to be forgiven. Never to be fine again. I'd never been fine in their eyes to begin with. The shunning action was not a withdrawal of fellowship and support, but a formalizing of the fellowship that had been routinely withheld for ten years by that point. Because my brain, my life, my feelings hadn't smelled right to my dour, meticulously anti-pleasure brethren, they doubled down on the shame they'd raised me to feel, all the while promising to deliver the message from God that there was no reason for me to feel guilt and shame and fear, and then saying the opposite in his name. I'd laughed at their messages of God's love pamphlet with its dire warnings of the consequences of breaking rules written on the side of cans of pressurized whipped cream, so they repeated the messages of God's love in writing. The meeting, I mean God, is not mocked. Mistakes aren't okay. You are not accepted or okay once you made them. That was the message. Messages of God's love delivered. Messages of God's love received. And I understood it. What do you tell a twenty-something with a global order of shunning in his hand? Same thing you tell a wife with a black eye. Nothing. You already told him once. I got the message by registered mail with a follow-up phone call ensuring I would admit I'd received it and read it and understood it. I was wicked, rejected, not forgiven, not good enough, not included, not in good standing, not fit to eat with because of being toxic, 
corrupting, and harmful to Christians in general and young people in particular, not on a sensible or acceptable life path, and therefore not going to be blessed in my life by God until they decided. While they continued to refuse to discuss the matter, stating an official intention to never discuss it with me again in future, my further communications went unanswered. So this is how my culture, our brethren sub-society, told me was the only sane, accurate, proper, and healthy way to view myself and my life. And the usual next part, the normal bit about them then taking away that shame, fear, and guilt for me, was notably missing for once, because they wanted me to feel that forever. Now there was a pitched battle between me listening to them saying this and A, living it for the rest of my life, all alone, exiled, cancelled, banished, but believing them, or deciding that B, either there was no God, simple, or that C, according to the Bible, God and the meeting differed in their view of me. In the eyes of God, I was already reckoned righteous, accepted, forgiven, good, fine dinner company, potentially helpful to Christians in general, even young ones included, in good standing and pursuing a perfectly sensible and proper life path and quite possibly going to be blessed by God in my life if he wanted to do that. Now, obviously, the only really sensible answers there are B and C. Either there isn't a God or God in the meeting disagree. Chris relates to my feeling that our brethren upbringing was very focused on death. Have you ever thought about your own death, um, have, like in a, in a dark way or just generally? Have you ever thought about what you want to have accomplished by the time you're no longer here? Or have you ever thought about that stuff? Uh, growing up, I probably went to more funerals than weddings. Wow. And so, yeah, you know, death was a huge part of my upbringing, I guess. Um a lot of our hymns were about it. Hymns were about it, sure. So yeah, death has been a big part of my life. Major job of church is to make us comfortable with the idea of death, that it's not that bad. It's okay. Yeah. When my dad died, it, I found out death isn't that fun. No. People call so. it, oh, it was a peaceful death, and peaceful deaths can really suck. But yes, I've thought about my death, especially when I'm depressed. I'm like, eh, I just... Don't want to have to fight anymore. I'm done. I, th I think that's pretty normal. Like I, I think we do teenagers a disservice if we don't sort of tell them that you shouldn't panic if you have a thought like that, because pretty much everyone has had that thought. It doesn't mean that you don't take suicidal ideation seriously, but if one time you thought about that, it doesn't mean that you know all of a sudden you're different from everybody else. In fact, everybody does that. Um, yeah. What makes you change your mind? What what makes life seem like it's worth living or makes it easier to live? I have responsibilities. Right. Do you find like the fact that you have kids just makes it that you can't even seriously consider it because they need you? Basically. So I think that that works. I don't have kids, but I mean, I have a nephew. And that's the sort of thing that you, it's just, it seems like kid talk eventually because people need you and it would be the worst thing to do to them. It suddenly yeah. it just becomes like... When you're when you're 17, it seems like the world deserves it. And I'll show them or whatever. But when you grow up, you realize like nobody deserves that. Yeah. And, and the more friends I've lost in different ways, the more I kind of resent that they did that. That it's a horrible thing to do to people. Um, what do you think in terms of your week or your life or whatever? What are the things that you might maybe pressure you toward that sort of thinking or feeling though? Is there anything sort of predictable that makes it tough to keep going on? Getting into a fight with Sherry. 
that makes it tough. And then usually you make up and it's fine, but it can be challenging. Get really, really angry. <laughs> so you're, you having two kids and having a wife really helps you not have suicidal ideation and you're able to keep it together because you need to keep it together, but it also makes it easier to keep it together. Well, it makes it easier to be triggered, put it that way. It's a double-edged sword. Oh, gotcha. If you were single and had no kids at the age that you are right now, do you think you'd be in some ways happier or do you think it would be kind of depressing to be that age? I would be very depressed. I think I would still be living in a basement making minimum wage, quote unquote, and uh, just by myself. And so I think I'd be very, it'd be a bad spot for me. So I'm thankful I'm married and I'm thankful I have kids. Tim also feels that the secret to feeling that life has meaning is having a wife and children. I don't know about you, man. Are you married? No. Yeah. Okay. So even no though dumb I... enough to marry me. <laughs> so I've been asking people the difference. Uh, when during the course of your life have, and do you feel like the most like alive you are yourself and you are living? Well, I, I can, I can tell you exactly when I feel the most alive these days. I'm a father now. Right. Uh, and, you know, my wife and I raised our daughter with love. We've given her so much love and surrounded her. And she's, she has, she's never seen her daddy drunk. You know, mm-hmm. uh, she never seen, never had to pull her father off of her mom because he's trying to choke her to death. You know, uh, she's got full support and, you know, and she's, and we, we, my, my daughter's been saying shit since she was like five years old. You know, we don't, <laughs> we don't put these, we don't make her feel bad. You don't say that word. Uh, when I'm with her, when I'm with, when I'm with, uh, you know, especially when she was younger and we'd spend time together, I mean, that, there's just no other better feeling for me. Uh, cause I felt like it's like, okay, even though I was a total waste of space of life, Somehow the universe has allowed me to be a part of this person's life. Randy, are you all right? Oh, Dr. Rebecca, I'm scared. I've never been so scared. Besides, I'm 26 and I'm not married. We're going to make it. You've got to believe that. Dr. Rumack, do you have any idea when we'll be landing? Pretty soon. How are you bearing up? Well, to be honest, I've never been so scared. But at least I have a husband. <laughs> I will say that what gets me up every morning is, if there's anything that I am, I'm smart, but I'm not a genius and brilliant. But what I am is really, really curious. And I always want to learn more and know more. And I'm, and, and, and to me, curiosity is the answer to that. And it's weird, but I just, there's never, there's always something more to learn or see or experience. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is really a huge part of what gets me up every day. Now I get to speak a little quieter. I don't want my wife to hear this, yeah. but um, when I was at a certain point in my life, and I'm not at right now, a lot of that would have surrounded chasing women, quite frankly. Yeah. Um, honestly, it sounds weird, but it stemmed from curiosity. Mm-hmm. It, it stemmed from curiosity. Can I get that girl to go out with me? What would she be like with the uh, sex with, et cetera, et cetera. So which is why I've lived the kind of life I have, or I have experienced a ton of different stuff and I've done a different ton of stuff. And I have, a, I've had a wide range of interests 
I haven't, I haven't, like, I'm not super good at any one thing because I haven't, I've, I've, I, because I've done so many different things. I've, 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 but I have a, I definitely, definitely in the classic case of a jack of all trades, a master of none. Like I can build a cabin, but I'm not a carpenter. I'm curious. I want to know more. I want to experience more. I want to learn something. I want to see something. I want to smell something. I want to eat something. And in terms of was I looking for a reason to keep living, like, because I have been suicidal on and off for quite a long time. And when I was younger, probably from like age 12 on for quite a long time, the thought that would keep me going would be, oh, you haven't read all the books that you wanted to read yet. So you have to stay alive to read them. And that worked for a long time, a decade or so. And then I stopped caring about that because one of the things that depression does is just it saps the joy out of things that you enjoy doing too. And um, that stopped working. So it turned into, well, like I can't die because it would make other people sad. I'm really noticing that most people think that wife and kids are what make life worth living. When Johan's father, Don, was asked if he'd ever thought about the end of his own life, that crops up again. So I'm on my deathbed, and uh, I think about leaving all my loved ones behind, and I'm thinking, uh, I'm so sorry I'm not going to be able to be with you guys much longer. Um, I hope you all look after each other. Melody was never kicked out nor even left her brethren assembly, but getting divorced put her in a pretty dark place. Post-divorce, I was in this great period of post-traumatic growth. Um, I just learned this phrase, like, it's fantastic, and it's just, it's a thing, and I love it. And it was a great time in my life. I really actually like to tell my brethren friends that my divorce was um, the best thing that ever happened to me. Mm -hmm. They don't quite know what to say to that. A few years after that, like, I was fully recovered. I'd gone to counseling, gone to the support group, done the work. Life was great. Um, but I was in this period of real depression and it was the, the overall feeling was like, is this as good as things are ever going to be? Like I'd been steadily growing for a couple years and then all of a sudden, bam. And also I had been training for a half marathon. I ran the half marathon and then stopped running. So there's some chemical stuff happening too that, you know, like cut off the supply of dopamine. Yes. Yeah. It's like that pain. I, thing, I wouldn't but... know. <laughs> It's when you have pain and then you're like, adrenaline overcomes the pain. I think it's dopamine. Anyway, that's ne that's so. That's never, never happened to me. <laughs> I get the pain, but then that never, ever, ever happens. So during that post growth period and the post half marathon period, I was what I call passively suicidal. Mm -hmm. Like I wasn't going to pick up my gun. I wasn't going to do anything actively, but I thought about it nonstop. And I thought um, at, on my almost hour commute, if one of those semis would just run me over, mm -hmm. I would be perfectly happy. Yeah. But I knew if I drove myself into the semi, I'd probably just end up paralyzed and, you know, worse, more I'm, miserable. 
occasionally, passively, as you say, thinking about suicide seems to be part of most people's normal mental health is that it, it, it does occur to you. It, it's a thing uh, in the same way that, I don't know, you could imagine being an alcoholic or imagine being a heroin addict. You could imagine being a suicide, but people have, have this to differing degrees. Mostly it just would kind of haunt me. You think it's tough if society tells you you'll never get a man if you have a thick waist or small breasts or something, or that you never get a woman because you're under five foot nine and don't have a nice house? You're right. That is tough. Those are ancient problems with ancient reasons for persisting today. Good luck repairing society in a generation or two so that magically none of that is any longer considered in dating and mating choices. I'll wait. My house is okay, but I am under five foot nine. Seriously, we don't have time to wait. So just ignore what people say and go get a man or a woman anyway if you're looking for one. One who loves your body. Try it. It's been successfully done many times before. But imagine for a moment having your society not just tell you you're not first pick in the Procreation Olympics, but officially, in writing, have them judge globally that you are corrupt and dangerous and should never have membership in a church, have a wife or kids, or maybe even a job teaching them. Having Christians generally treat you as if you are, until everyone you are, wicked, toxic, to be avoided and gotten rid of for the rest of your life. Also not easy. Many of us have not found it to be so. And no amount of being chided to just walk away or just get over it and move past it has helped us any more than that sort of folk wisdom helps people with clinical depression, PTSD, bipolar disorder, or terminal bone cancer. Ed doesn't like some of the letters he got once he was kicked out for being gay. I'm so, you know, tired of getting letters because I got so many, probably been got not many, but I got many mm -hmm. letters from people um, saying really awful things. Like, you know, somebody even proposed or said that, that I was going to suicide because homosexuality mm -hmm lead people to be an atheist or be, you know, suicide because we can find our, our, you know, fulfillment and, 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 and sin. And so I'm going to suicide. That was what somebody wrote to me saying, I know you're going to suicide. And I was like, what? And I, and I was afraid about those ideas, you know, you know, like somebody saying the thing. I have multiple sclerosis. I ask God for my dead left hand to not end up being MS, and without my surrendering all or even that one specific thing to him, it's MS. I have not just gotten over it or moved past it. I haven't found freedom by avoiding saying the words multiple sclerosis or thinking about it. Sometimes you just have to live anyway, despite something you can't change. I can't walk away from neurological damage in my brain and spine, obviously. I'm lucky I can walk, period. And perhaps not as obviously, I can't change the upbringing I had either or what happened when I was given a final judgment of having been a failed Christian experiment, a life product not going to be continued, a faith show not getting another season on that network. That kind of stuff can help you have some pretty dark thoughts and feelings about yourself sometimes. And things get better, but you're never really done being you and everything that entails. It's mostly about getting up and finding good stuff to put in with all that bad they gave you. And all of that, of course, is the thing that bad stuff interferes with most, starting with the getting up to begin with. That's why we view it as a problem, because you can't just walk away from it. 
You try telling a chronic depressive with suicidal ideation from childhood up that he is a bad, immoral person, spiritually dangerous and not fit for anyone decent to be around, that the life he is living is one big mistake, a warehouse filled with wrong choices, a person-shaped sin, an abomination to God, the one who invented people to begin with. Make sure this is someone who was bullied a lot in school for being small and oddly precocious, being given by the other kids a clear message that said, you aren't the way a person is supposed to be here, so I'm going to exclude you and punish you and punch you. Make sure it's someone whose father also gave a strong message of, you aren't the way a person is supposed to be. The things you think and feel and say don't make any sense to me, so I'm going to reject and punish you every time you do and think and feel things. Those messages overwhelm any attempt you might have to disagree, to try to view yourself in a different way, unless you're a naturally, incredibly strong person, and not all of us are people like that. It's hard to imagine a God who views you in a different way, either. Ruth was raised in the same brand of brethren group as I was, only in Maine. What in your life has made you be in your darkest place um, in terms of what, what's either a specific thing or the sorts of things? Yes, there's been a lot of those. For the first time I ever felt suicidal. Um, you don't mind if I share this with you? Oh, no, please. The first time I felt suicidal, I was 18 years old. I had just begun to come to terms with the fact that I had been molested. And I heard... In meeting, one of the brethren got up and spoke on sexual morality and spoke on the importance of sexual purity. I was sitting there saying, I'm a rape survivor. If this is what God wants, sexual purity, I'm screwed. I can't possibly be allowed to be a Christian, to be sitting here. I think I need to be dead because I, I, I'm not welcome here. That was one example, but there are many examples from that time in my life. Whenever I'm living a week, there normally seem to be basically two groups or two tribes, and I always feel like both of them hate me. And that's, that's for me, where the suicidal ideation always came from. The suicidal ideation came from when I was 17. There was school with worldly people and meeting with Christian meeting people, and it was very obvious that both wanted me to not exist. And it felt like that pressure coming from both sides that I was going to inevitably succumb to it. Wow. Yeah, it's been my drive to try and get, to, to not let those divisions, those imaginary walls exist. Ben, trained to counsel Christians, is angry about how suicidal young Christians are all too often dealt with, or more often, not dealt with. I don't want to be superstitious about it, but this thing where you predict, it's almost a hopeful prediction that something bad will happen because you're not doing what we want. Yeah, it's so self-righteous on their part. If you think somebody's going to kill themselves, run after them, yeah. give them a hug and pull them back in. Yeah, it's like you deconstruct your life. Everything that you thought was your life kind of is falling down and you're having to tear it down or try to build it back up or whatever you want to do. And I did find during that point that there was definitely a problem with uh, depression and thoughts of suicide because I didn't know how to live a different way. So awesome. Yeah. So that you're not surprised to hear that, I bet, because it happens to so many people, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It, it It is. that. That's what makes me mad when somebody is going to that point in their lives or ha when somebody commits suicide. I'm sad, of course, but I'm really angry that that person felt so alone and mm -hmm. so without hope. 
that is the exact opposite of what we're supposed to do. And if they had any connection to any Christian, that is what I get angry about because they had they had access to someone that should be loving them, but that person didn't engage. And so there is an attentiveness now to who we just the these things we're learning of who's our neighbor, meaning who's around you, who do you come across naturally in your life? And the Good Samaritan story is the example that Jesus gives of who's your neighbor. Mm-hmm. Is the person you come across while you're walking? And look at the two people, the a Pharisee and a Sadducee, the religious people literally ignored that person. Yeah. And the foreigner, the person that was not a part of the community, like you and me and us here, we're not a part of that community, are the ones that God is going to say, look at that example. We paid, you know, he went and paid for his healing to happen. And so that's what we want to do is just we can't necessarily we can't fix the world. We're not called to do that but we are called to love those that we come across as we walk. Mm-hmm. And we don't have, every story is going to be different. How they're injured, how that person has been hurt is different. We're, we're hurt differently. I specifically have a memory of being at a young people's event at Rito Ferry at the beach. I don't know if you were there or not, but I remember specifically being there. And this is when we were a little older. And I remember some kids from high school coming who were bullies and trying to bully uh, the meeting kids around and seeing me there yeah. and, and and coming up what the f- are you doing here and and that kind mm-hmm. of thing and and kind of being dicks to and trying to get me to pick on the meeting kids with them i'm like no i'm here with them and we're just hanging out don't be assholes i specifically yeah. remember that I remember but that. me but me being there totally diffused like changed yeah. the dynamic between everything because they weren't going to come and they they knew that i was prepared to fight if it came down to it really yeah. easily and that i wasn't going to let anybody bully anybody but at the same time I was also embarrassed in a weird way. I was caught between two worlds in yeah. a weird way. I remember that very well. I remember it because I had such a split feeling. I had the fear that somebody, people are going to come and bully us, but I also had the, you know, this thing up. Like I want to see it right. because I, because I also hated what we were doing and, and what we were because it was hurting me and I, right. I didn't enjoy it. And I was, I was required to enjoy it. And so there was that part of me that was sort of, thinking this is hilarious that we've got people here who do not have the memo about not swearing. Right. You know, that one seems to have a beer. Like this is interesting. Um, right. That's, yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. I remember playing several different types of games and having a very nice time playing the mm-hmm. games. Yeah. Like, you know, thoroughly enjoying going. Like I remember playing, you know, the, the, the red Rover and whatever, and some of the field games and some of the sports and, and, you know, and saying, hey, it was fun. I remember, and the food was usually good. And like, so I do remember, please don't think that all my memories surrounding those particular events are negative. They're not. Mine are um, mostly negative. <laughs> yeah, mine are not. I, you, you had a happier time. And, and again, I was dealing with depression and probably the hardest thing for me is that mandatory cheerfulness that you had to enjoy it. And I, di- I just didn't, I didn't have it in me to do these games. So I would go out cause I had nothing to do. And they'd be like, Hey, everyone, we're going to do the thing. And I'd be like, no, I can't do the thing. And they'd be, they, they'd get angry or take it personally that I wasn't enjoying yeah, I remember the thing. That. And that, that sucked. Yeah. For There's sure. no reason. And I was just, I, I, I was so much less vested than you because I wasn't yeah. I'm part of it. I mean, to me, it was, just, oh, we're going to go and hang with some people and play a game. Okay. And so it was, I was, I was less vested in it. Than you were, and and I, and I, you know, although I probably knew they had ulterior motives per se in a weird way, it, it just didn't. I didn't think about it a terrible amount. The album goes dark, and it does address like I was going through a period of 
um, I felt myself being elbowed out of the meeting and not being able to do the meeting thing. And I didn't, I couldn't connect to the world and I felt like I had nowhere to be, nowhere, nowhere to live. So I felt suicidal mainly for the reason that I didn't know where and how to live or, or I, I felt like I didn't have permission to live as myself. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And I mean, I, I make the comparison. This is the sort of way that gay and trans people tend to talk. I wasn't that. I was just somebody who was dissatisfied or thought too much or whatever it was mm-hmm. that I was and right. probably philosophical or intellectual mm-hmm. or something, not, not necessarily smarter than anybody, but I definitely was thinking a lot more and about things that they weren't willing to even discuss and, and all that it, was very much frowned upon. And it made me think about death. It made me think about, like, I don't know mm-hmm. what to do. I don't know how to live. And so it made mm-hmm. me very mm-hmm. seriously consider from about 15 up of, I think that might be the only path for me. So I had dark thoughts and feelings. I was kicked out of November in time for my birthday. I know in January, I imagined them coming to Sunday morning meeting and finding my frozen corpse lying across the threshold, like the rape-to-death maidservant in the lovely and instructive Bible story they'd read to us in that self-same meeting hall. Of course, really, I sometimes attended, having to sit in the special section in the back for people not allowed to worship by taking communion, and having to leave if they were having a lunch or social event. But try telling the chronic depressive that he'll be shunned forever because of what he essentially is in his deepest self. It was just like being back in high school. Conversely, try telling him that a bit of yoga, some breathing exercises, a bit of therapy, and some meds are going to make it like none of this stuff ever happened, and that life will then continue on just as if it didn't. Try telling him to just forget about it all. When I knew I'd be interviewing people about depression, I thought, in a simple-minded way, Who has been posting about being depressed the most on Facebook? Along with one of the various Joels I know, the answer was Jenny, who I took sword lessons with a few years back. Jenny found my reason for choosing to interview her kind of darkly hilarious. She was born in China, but grew up in Canada, so has some global perspective on things, and started a neuroscience degree before switching to arts, so knows more than I will ever know about depression and meds and so on. I've always felt scared of doing medication because it changes you, maybe not as much as I think. So a lot of people think I should just take medication, but I am told that it's not magic. No, there's, um, I was very lucky in terms of my medication. Um, the, and even then, one of the first things that was prescribed to me gave me tremors that were really, really bad. Um, like to the point of, I couldn't draw and like I would spill things when I eat and that changed when the medication changed and I got on a medication that just kind of it reminded me of how I used to feel before I became super extremely depressed and like I I remembered things that I had forgotten and good things but like those drugs slowly lost their effectiveness as well. So like the dosage had to go up. And then after that, I, it still didn't work, but I wasn't seeing the psychotherapist anymore. Um, so I took myself off the meds, cold turkey, which you are not supposed to do, but going off the meds, um, like that actually boosted my mood for a while. The random side effect was that it felt good? 
which is not supposed to happen? Um, it was like going off the meds did the same thing for me, brain chemistry wise or mood wise, as going on them in the first place. Hmm. Which was very strange, but like I totally understand um the aversion to meds when I first went to see a therapist. Um first time I went to school when I was very, very depressed. I was very adamant and I didn't want meds. I didn't want to be dependent on something for the rest of my life. It wasn't even a um payment or um a financial issue at that time. It was just like on principle. I don't want to be dependent on something for the rest of my life. But it got my mood uh I had a mental breakdown. Um and that was when I said that I would give meds a try because it was meds or the very real possibility that I would just end things. For economist Evan, the only time he struggled with real depression or suicidal ideation was the result of being overworked and incredibly run down. Where I feel terrible, um, I probably had a bit of suicide ideation in grade 10, 11, somewhere in that area. And then again, like pretty recently before I, I went on a stress leave um, from my PhD, it, it's not wanting to die. That's not really right. It's, I think, more of an escapism. You know, I, I was a very strong student in school. And so if it was coming up to a test and I hadn't studied, I had sort of bitten off more than I could chew, trying to cram it the night before or whatever. It's not that I want to die. Like, it's not that my life isn't worth living. It's I don't want to sort of face the music, right? I don't want to go in there and demonstrate that, you know, I'm incompetent or, or, or whatever sort of paranoia I can come up with that people are going to think less of me or, or anything like that. I, I work very hard and occasionally I'm tired because of it. And then what happens is that the suicide ideation isn't, I want to die. It's, I want a break. I'm tired. You know, I, I, you know, everybody needs a break. And now that you're taking a break, is <laughs> it being pretty helpful? Yeah. Like I was getting to a point where I was sort of paralyzed before even starting like doing work. So it's not like I was doing work and it was bad. It was like I could barely get started, um, which my doctor called occupational burnout disorder. He told me stress leave isn't a real thing. It has to have a name. So it's called occupational burnout disorder. I think that's what it's called. And so what he was saying basically was, you know, hopefully that this break will actually help you, you know, get back to being productive. And it really has been like, it's just, I had a few weeks off. It sort of speaks, I suppose, to my character that the best medicine for what I was going through was to take a vacation. But I, I really until this happened, didn't realize I needed that. Your question was, you know, what makes your life feel like living death, I think was how you phrased it. What what makes it terrible for me is when I'm not getting to a point where I sort of get to do the thing that I want to do as well as I want to do it, as well as I know I could do it, um, because I've sort of sabotaged myself by, you know, taking on many, many things and never giving myself time to decompress. Emily also found that suicidal ideation was a problem when experiencing profound exhaustion. Yeah, there are definitely times when existence feels like a living death. Uh, the closest I've ever come to that feeling was under severe sleep deprivation. Mm -hmm. um, 
then you really do feel like a zombie and you really do feel like you're dying or almost dead. And you had kids and, when that happened, didn't you? Yes, because I did. Because Sherry said exactly the same thing. And what I'm getting from several people who are contributing to this podcast is that having a wife and kids can make you feel that life is worth living more than anything else. Yet marital strife, trouble with the kids and sleep deprivation can make you feel like you're already dead. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, for me, it was that my son was very ill for several months and I was not sleeping because I was caring for him throughout the night and throughout the day, um, just making sure that he was staying alive. And that felt very much like a living death or a zombie existence. I think a lot of people can probably identify with this right now it, uh, going through the COVID pandemic and all of the isolation is for me, it feels like a living death when I am not having meaningful connections. So not having meaningful connections with people, um, not having a meaningful connection with nature and not having a meaningful connection with myself in the sense that, you know, am I being creative? Mm -hmm. If I'm not being creative and putting something out there and um, basically using my mind and my body to um, contribute something to the world around me, that feels like a living death as well. Recreation yeah. means recreating. And in a real yeah. sense, you're rebuilding yourself back into your normal shape before you got into whatever shape, you know, life puts you in. It's like you rebuild yeah. yourself. Yeah, I agree. And then the what makes me feel alive is the opposite of that. It's having those meaningful connections with people and with nature and um, with myself and my body and my own creativity. Um, it's having those conversations that really stimulate your mind and get you thinking. It's having that heart-to-heart -heart connection with somebody where you guys, you know, you feel like you're supporting each other emotionally and you get each other and so on and so forth. It's going out into nature and taking a deep breath and smelling the leaves on the tree or, you know, feeling my body in movement Writing, you know, that's an example of a type of creativity that makes me feel very much alive. Mm -hmm. um, all of those things. Yeah, it's it's the opposite of, of what I had said earlier that makes me feel fully alive and fully present. Now, do you agree with me that um, occasional suicidal ideation is something that most human beings are likely to go through for one reason or other or not? Well, in my experience, when I speak to people, yes. Um, I don't know anyone who hasn't thought of suicide at one point or another, you know, whether they sat down and contemplated it seriously or contemplated it for several months or years or, you know, it was chronic suicidal ideation um, or if it was just, you know, a fleeting thought where they were so stressed or, you know, so aggravated with the situation that they thought, gosh, I could just drive this car off this cliff. You know, everybody I know has had some form of suicidal ideation at one point or another. And I think that we sort of teach, we don't want kids to kill themselves. And actually that's a time when they're quite likely to, is if they have suicidal ideation when they're teenagers and uh, indigenous and white people disproportionately kill themselves in, in adolescence compared to any other group of people on the planet. We almost act like you should panic. And so, although I think it should be taken seriously and it should be medicated if death is, is, is like, a real risk. But in a sense, I also think the message needs to be out there that this is something that most people do think about. So just because you're thinking about it, um, you should take it seriously because you want to live. 
but also thinking about death is something that's pretty normal and most works of literature do it and people do it. So don't panic, uh, be serious about it, but yeah, don't panic. Chris's wife, Sherry also found that extreme exhaustion pushed her into the path of suicidal thoughts, if not actual traffic. The only other, the only other time I actually had any sort of ideation was I was severely sleep deprived driving home from college and I was like five minutes from home and I was just kind of in like this translate state like what if I just drove my car past the middle line and into oncoming traffic I could do that that would be very easy to do just turn my wheel a little bit but then I was like but then that would be so messy be a big headache for my parents they'd have to like get all these bills and do a funeral yeah I'll just go home right <laughs> a phase where anytime I got, I call it my angsty teen days, where I was very likely to be broody um, and melodramatic. And so when I would be really depressed, I would, or upset about something, I would imagine just not talking and continuing in silence for so long or refusing to eat or whatever, that people would start to get worried about me and would beg me to like come out of it. And then, uh, you know, winding up in the hospital or something. And then I'd just take a nap. And when I woke up, I, I would feel much better and be like, wow, what was I thinking about that? That was so dumb. <laughs> Some people might be listening to my podcast who um, really don't get depression. I know that some of the people commenting didn't. So, I mean, obviously there's grief. So, for instance, if you lose a family pet or, or a loved one, you feel sad. And that's not at all the same. And so you feel very sad. And if someone says, why are you sad? You have a very easy explanation of, you know, my dog died. Therefore, I'm sad. Everyone understands this. It's natural. You get over it eventually. And then there's like me that I just kind of go through life. And when I'm supposed to be excited and exuberant and enthusiastic, every time someone says, aren't you excited for, I just say no, because I almost never get excited for things. It's like, that's like a juice that I don't have in me. I don't have the getting all happy and excited juice. So it's like that misfires every time I'm supposed to get all happy. Usually it doesn't work. And in fact, the more you press me for that joy response, eventually I will lose my temper because I can't and it annoys me. Now, obviously, one of the difficult things about being me is people will say, you know, why are you sad? Because I'm sad a lot. And there's no answer to that. It's just, I'm just kind of like this. And a lot of happy people will say, well, that's not normal. So you have to be on pills. And that's, I don't listen to that because they're basically saying you aren't like me. So that's wrong. So take pills until you're more like me. I know that won't work, but there's, there's people who, if they don't take meds, they will die. And that, I don't think I'm anywhere near that level. What do you think of all that? I don't think medication should be a last-ditch effort for everybody it's obviously different for everybody like and I have different um feelings about different types of medication um right now I'm having a lot of attention related issues and seriously considering whether or not um ADHD medication would help me live a better life but do I want to go on medication for for depression? Do I want to go on hormonal medication for birth control? No, I don't. 
the main experience Jenny had with profound suicidal ideation was as a side effect of antidepressant medication. For a very, very short amount of time, um, comparatively, but like for um, a while I was on medication for my depression and it worked and then it stopped working. But at that time, I wasn't seeing the same um, psychotherapist anymore. I wasn't seeing the same psychiatrist. I wasn't even in the same place. So everything had changed. Support system was gone. And I went to my GP and he kind of told me that, oh, what you're dealing with isn't a big deal. And here is a very, very large dose of medication with very bad side effects and potential like overdose things, whatever. So there is a bit of a contradiction in that. And uh, he's not my GP anymore. Did you try that or just go to a different person because of how he's being? I don't have a GP right now. Um, there was an administrative error that um, resulted in me not being his patient anymore but I didn't do anything to fix that administrative error even though I could have because I just didn't want to see him anymore so there wasn't like a huge confrontation or anything it was more of a well I'm just not going to go to him for help anymore state the obvious being depressed makes it hard to get the motive energy together to make life changes including looking for new professionals to deal with exactly and there's um, a lot of uncertainty in my life right now as well and i don't want to be looking for a professional in one place and then not be able to get there but um to uh finish up the story one of the medications that he prescribed me had a side effect of suicidal thoughts and it was a sleeping pill because i was suffering from insomnia at that time and I took it one night and then actually stayed up for most of the night, got help from my parents because I was living at home at that time, which I like, I don't often go to my parents for help, but I did on that occasion. And they sat with me through the night while the medication made me suicidal. Um, it wasn't a case of I wasn't suicidal at the time that this happened, but it was more of a matter of principle of if I'm going to kill myself, it's not going to be because medication told me to. When I was younger, I found it extremely cathartic to put my darkest thoughts and feelings into lyrics that sometimes became songs. I talked with Jay Semko of the Northern Pikes so about picking up from him and John Gorka the habit of putting darker than you'd expect stuff in the lyrics of a song that might be otherwise funny or upbeat. Oh, yeah. Well, I, I loved... I mean, the Pikes, all of us, we were pretty big Smiths fans and pretty big Morris fans. And uh, I just really like that sort of quirkiness in the lyrics.
I had a very dark year and I think it, it, a lot of the songs are pretty dark. And I think you're responsible, sir, for some of the darkness on that album. Yeah, Sh- yeah. Shotgun Morning is, is one of those ones where when I listened to the lyrics, it was like, holy crap. And the first time you heard them, it, it sort of stood out from the other ones as there's some dark thoughts in this. And yeah, I, that I like what? that. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good. That you, you know, I, I found that one kind of a tough one to kind of, we just played it live for a little while. And anytime you write something, it's really kind of biting, uh, they're, they're tough to maintain the energy on for playing it over a long period of time, you know? So, so we played it a little bit on, you know, some of our gigs promoting the Snow and June album, I guess. And then, uh, and then we never really played it. I am the bloody tongue of evil who could never have a conscience. And the reason I existed is stupidity and hate. It's a hidden You know, it's interesting in the Pikes, one thing that, you know, taking pretty dark lyrical thoughts and subjects and giving them kind of a happy tune, yes. you know, a happy melody. And yeah. we did that all the time. I mean, really, when you when you look at, I mean, Teen Land, I guess, is kind of dark, but it's sort of disguised in a bit of a Art Deco, you know, James Bond, New Wave kind yeah. of vibe, you know, musically going on. Things I do for money. That's a pretty dark song. And the music really does complement that. And I mean, you know, it's just, I feel like the band really worked on that song and made something really cool out of it, you know, when we recorded it. Mm-hmm. I used to be quite critical, but now I find I'm cynical. A lady with a starving baby miles away from me. No problems here, just life and death. And what the hell is wrong with me? Everybody. And, you know, I look at subsequent singles that did well, and Wait For Me, that's another kind of a sad one. Astray. There's a good example of which Brian wrote. He wrote Hopes Go Astray. That's a good example of a happy melody with uh kind of a somewhat sad story you know those are ones that i i sing hopes go astray has an odd rhythm for me it's drum i find it's well that was a tough one you know i don't remember how we came up with it i think donnie came up with a boom 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 you know just trying yeah. to find something that was just not a straight uh a straight beat there, you know, or even, you know, Girl With A Problem. That's a very dark song. Girl 
the d- demos we did for that were quite a bit more moody and mm-hmm. and melancholy sounding. You know, just the way we played the song, the arrangement. It was kind of more acoustic-y. And well, the, no, the very first version was the a long version that was mainly it, the band came in, but it was a lot of acoustic guitar and very uh, very sad, melancholy version of that mm-hmm. song. Wait for me. And then we went in, and I thought, wow, I think we need to. Give this some life. So <laughs> I had this weird thing in my mind that it it should sound kind of like uh like Latin music or like a like a Mexican band mm-hmm. or something, you know. And it just didn't work. <laughs> we recorded a demo like that. We did another one after that where it was kind of like trying to be like Def Leppard or Foreigner or something, you know. And we had did a couple of songs like that, including Kiss Me You Fool. You know, it was so funny. It was like you know, I list, they're very cringeworthy now, but you're experimenting. You're just trying mm-hmm. to do quickie recorded versions of these songs and go what direction will work. Because that one, we knew we had a good song. The girl with the problem, we just didn't know really what to do with it arrangement-wise. When I asked Jay what exactly is so therapeutic about writing dark lyrics, he said that for him and many others, it's not just the writing of lyrics that's therapeutic, but of having them received well by others who will believe in and work on them, first in rehearsal and then in the recording studio or on stage. Oh, I think uh, part of it's the completion process of when you write a song. It's one thing to, for me to sit and record it on my phone or make mm-hmm. a little recording a garage band or something on the computer. And it's another thing to kind of actually share it with somebody like it would be with sharing with the guys in the pikes or if I, or if it's a song that's going to go on a solo record, it's sharing with whoever I'm going to be working with in the studio, the engineer. And then I, you know, I just know that there's going to be other musicians involved at some point and it's sharing it with them. And then, you know, it's that sort of slow process of feeling not as self-conscious about the song, you know, in case there was any risk at all of my forgetting who I was talking to, Jay's comments about working on a Pikes album with record producer Hugh Padgham fixed that. And I don't care who you are. I, I think most writers I've met are pretty self-conscious. It doesn't matter even, you know, and people are, people that you don't even aren't aware of. I remember Hugh Padgham, who was a great recording engineer, and he mixed five songs from Snow and June. He had done a lot of records with... Uh, the police and with Sting, XTC, Phil Collins and Genesis, just lots of interesting, mm-hmm. interesting people along the way. And just some of the things he would say. And I think he sort of mentioned these things to sort of put us at ease to a certain extent. But he had said that whenever he was mixing records with Sting, Sting was quite self-conscious about his voice. You know, and it was always a battle to get his voice loud enough in the mix. And it was a, mm-hmm. with Hugh talking about he said there was kind of a magic spot when you found that correct spot because he has a a different sounding voice sting he's got a different kind of timbre in his voice but he's a great singer you know like i consider him one of the great rock singers you know when you hear like him singing roxanne and i mean those unique performances that are just going to live a long time and then uh, to hear (laughs) that he's like well you know i don't like my voice that much it's kind of like well, that's kind of how I felt in the past sometimes about certain things. You know? Right. You're, we're a bit of a role model for me because I do have a smooth baritone voice. And uh, I'm sure you could talk about the limits of trying to be a rock star when you've got a smooth baritone voice. Yeah. Well, it's, uh, I wish I could sing higher. I, I do sing higher now than I did before because I always smoked. You know, I mm-hmm. kind of started smoking in my mid-teens and, and then became a heavy smoker. Like I smoked from about age... I'd say from about age 19 or 20 on, 
Yeah, I was like a pack a day smoker, mm-hmm. you know, or, or as much as I could, <laughs> as often as I could. I smoked a lot of cigarettes, and I I really do feel like that limited my my vocal range, and because I was that age, and you know, my my heroes were people like, you know, Paul McCartney and Mick Jagger, and you know, we always saw a picture of those guys with a smoke in their yep. hand, and I thought, oh, that was that's kind of cool, but yeah, they're they're different than most. <laughs> Yeah, mortal rock singer people, you know. So the person who kind of came up with each part sang that part. Although, you know, that gets kind of blurred too, you know. There was lots of times when I had parts that I originally had for myself that I thought, ah, it'd be cooler to hear somebody else do this. And mm-hmm. that happened a lot, you know. It's We sort of, once we really got used to working together as a group, especially with the subsequent albums, you know, when we came back after having not, done anything for six years let me be as clear as i can and wrap this ramble up so we can do the next bit am i saying that the gospel itself exerted a pressure on people like me as adolescents pushing us towards suicide if your worldview is set up that there is a better world once you're dead (laughs) it makes you prone to suicide yeah whereas if this is all you get and you got to make the best of here and now then you will but if you're taught that like, well, heaven is better. Everyone you know and love is there and all your pain is going to be over. And that's a better world anyway. And it's the one we're trying to get to. I think it does set you up for to be a lot more suicide prone. And it gives you an easy out, I think. And it, most people don't want to be dead. They just don't want the obligation to do this week because they don't, don't know what to do this week. Yeah. So they want to not have to do it. Exactly. But I think also the, the, that view of like the afterlife being better cheapens this human experience Mm -hmm. it really does i'm saying that certain gospels can maybe be made to do that especially when wielded by irresponsible blinkered uncaringly ambitious men am i saying that our local brand of hellfire and brimstone gospel warm of the dust theology with its very odd idea of what exactly love was and how to make people feel it was hurting young people on purpose I'm saying that when people of influence, whether political, familial, or church leaders, are presenting a public image that focuses overmuch on, say, humility or compassion and fairness, this is often an overcompensation for a personal lack not necessarily shared by the audience this image is being inflicted upon. The leading brethren men seem to be continually offering shame-inducing sermons on meekness and humility without really being able to hear said sermons themselves and act any less arrogantly and socially aggressively, combatively, and competitively toward everyone around in our faith community. These men performed carrying a great and mighty burden on their hearts for the Lord's people, while putting in the time and personal attacks and muckraking necessary to kick or drive the Lord's people out of that Christian fellowship, either singly or wholesale, leaving fewer of the Lord's people there than had left. Like with other politicians, we were expected to evaluate their worth based on what they claimed and how they seemed superficially while giving a talk, rather than on what the end result of their involvement was. And the people who liked and recommended these fiery speakers and crushing black sermons most, just like people sharing links to pundits on YouTube, were the ones feeling no personal stab of guilt in the area stabbed at, despite probably being no superstars in that area, and quite often carrying a deep conviction that other people needed to listen to this guy, expressing what they then claimed to be exactly what they thought about other people. 
You know what I hate? People who feel superior to everyone else when they're not. Judgmental people. Negative people. Superior people. I really hate that. I'm not like that. Listen to Brother Williamson bring the lightning down on that kind of person. It's awesome. As usual, the people who took the sermons most to heart were the ones who were interested in, open to, and aware of their own shortcomings. People who needed these sermons less than those speaking. Because people who don't care much about others also don't much care that they don't care much. So the speakers were unmoved by their own sermons, continually bearing down on those areas which were personal lacks, not knowing or caring that people who were simply by temperament too extreme in the opposite direction were being further unbalanced by the continual shoving them in the direction the speakers themselves could not go at all. That's what I think. John, who grew up in the Plymouth Brethren Christian Church, has thoughts. To them, of course, um, because if the man of God says jump, they jump. You know, I mean, I, I've got family still in. I've got a brother and my father's still in. And uh, so I, I, I have concerns. And one of my concerns is, is their man of God one day going to tell them to all to commit suicide? Yeah. The doomsday cult thing is troubling, but I cannot picture the sort of people like Bruce Hales ever doing anything but asking for more money and power. And mm-hmm. I, can't, I can't imagine that they would do anything other than pursue their own good trying to work things out part six people deal in many different ways you know i know that the whole time you'd be like i know these people through my church mm-hmm. but it seemed like it was never a thing that was part of it like any of my are the things we did it it's like it. It's like it was there, but I never saw it. So I mean, I don't I mean that. I don't mean that they broke up the Bible and had a Bible no, study. No, no, no. But, but like, I mean, they 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 were they were weird drunks. I think. Yeah, they were definitely weird drunks. I mean, they were weird to begin with, but I definitely yeah. think that alcohol could amplify it in a way that yeah. was quite impressive. There was an incident. I think you might have remembered this one where I tipped the bartender with uh, loonies and toonies on purpose yeah. and uh, Canadian co- money. Yeah. Canadian money. And, and the guy, a real, an old style drunk saw the, the loony and picked it up. He's like a gold coin. Someone's tipped with a gold coin. And we were laughing our ass off. Now keeping me honest. Um, yeah. Am I also remembering rightly that I wasn't, you know, incredibly drunk or anything most of the time? Uh, no, you definitely weren't. Cause you were driving like yeah. um, later on when I went through that first drive through mm-hmm. drive through liquor store, the drive through liquor store, which was an old, um, uh, like auto repair, like gas station, and the two there was the three doors, and we opened up the one, drove in, and it was just this super air conditioned room, mm-hmm. wide open with stacks of liquor everywhere, mm-hmm. and it was just like you popped your trunk, and you just we asked for a few cases of beer, and they just put it in your trunk, and you drove and back out again. I was like this, at the time that blew my mind yeah. that like conceptually, oh, and the other thing, same similar thing at that bar. I learned that they were allowed to uh, take beer home. Take with them. beer home with them, which yeah. also was like, what? Like, which, which they seemed to need to do. So they, they'd go out and they'd drink a lot, and they're worried because at closing time they had to make sure they didn't forget to get six beer or that kind of thing. Yeah, because there was limits on it, and and I remember I bought some so that they could bring more home. In my memory, I would, I'm more of an observer in all of this, that I'm there and I'm driving, so I'm never drunk. Or and I was drinking because somebody just kept yep. 
buying me beer. And you're fun. And I, and yeah, I mean, I think I'm a pretty fun drunk. And it was, you know, just talking to people and having a good time and, yeah, using Canadian money to make people feel weird, uh, like wonder what the hell is going on. Like that merry kind of prankster stuff that both yeah. you and I are capable of. But there's, and there's personality quirks that came out. So, like, I'll never forget Mark drunk with a bunch of drunk people and someone was bragging about his lighter. So what Mark kept doing was picking it out of his pocket and planting it on other guys so that a fight would break out. <laughs> Are you shocked to hear that? Not at all. No. Not, not at all. He was... I uh, think we managed to make the guys not fight, but that making guys fight was like his favorite bar sport. And I remember him in Pennsylvania going and sitting down with someone and buying him a beer and saying, like, you know, that guy over there says you can kick your ass, and then do vice versa, and started making people fight each other. And uh, that kind of manipulation is the sort of thing I didn't find terribly... I found it hilarious, but also not very Im imitatable or supportable. Yeah, it's definitely kind of the um, jackass slash bum fight sort of... This is vaguely entertaining, but I probably shouldn't feel... This and, isn't a good thing to keep doing. And we got to <laughs> tell the kids, this was the 90s, and the 90s <laughs> yeah. were their own thing. The 90s were something about not caring, and like, let's just trash everything because we don't care. There was sort of a, a, a neo-punk thing happening. Well, it certainly was like the crux of Generation X, as they often yeah. like to say, where it's the, the failed generation where we just, we don't feel we have anything, so we just don't care about anything. Go and, you know, watch the Jackass movie and Natural Born Killers or something like that. When Doug redecorated his apartment with the contents of his skull, we all tried to deal in very different ways. Stuff like that hurts, and for a long time takes you right off guard, and you don't really get what's happened. People sometimes fight it out as to who gets to deal in his or her preferred way and who doesn't. Some people resort to darkly, wryly, inappropriate wording of the situation to hide how confusing and shocking and upsetting the whole thing actually was. At the time, some people needed to stay home and pretend they never knew Doug and that it hadn't happened. Others needed to say they knew all along that something like this was going to happen. Others needed to quietly come for the funeral and the time around it and be silent and say their goodbyes wordlessly by their quiet presence. Some people needed to have loud, random arguments with whoever was nearby. A couple of people needed to accuse my sister of helping make it happen by not simply marrying Doug. A female friend who tends to express herself emotionally and physically needed when we visited the grave the following year to lie on top of Doug's grave, her drunk body lying on top of, above his, and pass out sleeping with him in a way she never did in life. Her, dead drunk, Doug, just dead. Her, on the ground, Doug, in the ground. Michael needed to hold back tears and sing a song for Doug. Nathan needed to pretend to share a cigarette with Doug at his grave, poking a hole in the turf for Doug's cigarette to be placed in, and wear a shirt stained with Doug's blood from cleaning up Doug's apartment for months afterwards, perhaps to keep Doug or part of him around longer and by his heart and make sure the gravity of what had happened wasn't simply ignored or forgotten. Nathan's shirt reminded us of what had happened every time we saw him. He didn't need to put it into words. His blue denim shirt was a blood-stained message all of its own. One person needed, the night before Doug's funeral, to do that corporate thing and give a public speech to us all, reframing everything troubling as a positive, as wonderful, as a gift. Doug's possibly accidentally blowing his brains about the room and definitely dying single, childless, and alone, and us never seeing him again was the best thing ever. In fact, it was a precious gift given to us all by Doug, which gift we desperately needed 
to bring us all together as a group. Thank you, Doug, for helping us all out. What a precious gift. Well, I needed to say that a horrible, upsetting, and tragic thing had happened, and that I was devastated, afraid it was something that could happen to more of us, that it had come as a shocking blow in a time when none of us needed that. I needed someone to say something like that anyway, and no one was saying anything of the sort. I also needed to craft my regrets and horror and sorrow and loss into the words of a song. I put what had happened in words when no one else was saying dead or gone or suicide or shot himself or gone or anything like that. The song didn't use those words either and was gentle and remorseful and reminiscent. If you listen to season two of this podcast, you heard it, but it still pissed people off. My best read on the situation was that Doug didn't necessarily want to die, though he wasn't afraid of death, so much as he wanted to be able to tell people that he once risked death in a very dramatic way and survived like Mark had done before him. He kind of wanted bragging rights or an, an experience or a great story and it didn't really turn out that way. Is that, that's sort of how I view it is. What do you think? I tend to look at it in the very same way. Um, cause, I mean, I talked to Doug all the time at that point and like, I, there was no sense of depression coming off of him or a mm-hmm. suicidal kind of spirit. Um, you knew me and you knew what that was like. Yeah. I knew what that was like. And, I, and I've had other friends that were, a bit suicidal um but he he didn't have that it i mean it seems really strange that he spun the, the chamber the second time and did it in, in your podcast you have it three times I, in my memory it was only two times i mean he spun it once and the second time it went off um in your podcast you talked about mark having done that earlier i didn't remember that that mark had had done that this is what people have told me. I didn't, I didn't know it at the time, but people have told me this. So I don't, do you think that's true that people have been saying? I, I haven't asked Mark about it. If, and mm-hmm. I don't know if he'd remember it if, if I did, right? Right. Um, and, and that certainly would explain a certain amount of guilt or, or it would be horrible. I can't imagine uh, that. It doesn't seem like that's what was going on with Doug. He didn't seem suicidal or depressed or even. He did seem kind of reckless or kind of death wishy though, didn't he or not? Yeah. So it's sort of desperately reckless yeah um, yeah i i would go along with that um, i don't know i don't understand that do you have any theories on that I don't, I don't think he wanted to die but i think he wanted the the experience of risking death right well he admired all these characters that were fearless the ones that would not be scared of death in any sense and mm-hmm. i think that was a big part of it to be able to just walk through that door without flinching but i have the feeling that he wasn't quite expecting it to happen that so soon um, no. Mark needed to try to carry on as before, leading us in Bible devotionals and apologetics, drinking Bushmills whiskey by the bottle at a terrifying rate each day. When we all got together the following year to visit Doug's grave, I, for some reason, seemed to feel the need to put into words, privately to Mark, the fact that he, who was clearly trying to teach us about the Bible, was too drunk to carry it off at all, all the time. Of course he wasn't drunk, though. What did I know? I barely drank. 
So then I needed to put into words that in fact Mark had a drinking problem, that many of these ex-brethren folks did, and drunk carpentry and car accidents and jail and lost driver's licenses were starting to happen and showed no sign of slowing down and stopping. I was insulted for my concerns, my unfair sobriety being used as evidence of cheating in the discussion while knowing nothing about much of anything. And as you know, I didn't need Mark to quit drinking, not right then. First, I needed him to admit something was wrong, that what we were all suffering from and navigating around, the elephant in the room, as they say, was real, to establish that from then on, we could all speak in words about the fact that drinking was a group problem. I needed our friends to be able to hear or even use the words drinking problem, maybe even addiction or substance abuse or alcoholic. Jay Semko told me once that you can't help someone deal with a problem until he knows and admits that it is a problem. And Jay sure is right. Mark's family has since had to deal, and deal they have, talking about the problem without naming it, in fact, without even calling it a problem, but somehow talking about it with him anyway. I had little patience for that back in the day, and the friendship didn't weather it or recover. I guess the done thing would have been to have worded the thing angrily and insultingly as an accusation and attack and yell and swear and walk out on Mark. I don't know how to do that. I did my best to put the situation calmly and logically into simple words as a reality and tried to get a matching response from Mark and hear what he had to say if we were just talking here. It was something we were all dealing with. Could it be something we could all mention in words? And when it wasn't and drinking continued like a kind of redneck sacrament, I did eventually walk away. I'm still waiting for that admitting it's a problem and calling it that to ever be a thing. Most of those folks aren't my friends anymore, and I haven't made a lot of new ones. I've still been to way more funerals than weddings. Working in a high school, I usually have a couple of kids in each class who will, like I did when I was in high school, miss class for several days at a time and then show up like nothing happened. They'll do this several times a month. They're usually at home sleeping, playing games, and on their phones. Some are trying very hard not to let school interfere with their shifts at work, and so they miss school whenever there's a chance to make actual money to kind of be friendly and welcome and throw some humor on it instead of grimly ignoring the situation or being frighteningly overwelcoming or acting resentful at them for skipping my class. When a student has repeatedly missed a string of classes and then showed back up, when I was a new teacher shortly after Doug's death, I used to say something like, oh, I, I guess, guess you're, you're still, still alive, alive, or oh, oh good, I guess, guess you didn't die after all. all. One morning... I was walking by the main office, and a cheerful student who enjoyed unexpectedly singing Disney songs in my class with a group of her friends, but who'd been missing for a few days, was standing there. As I walked by, our eyes met. She looked kind of guilty, so I smiled at her and said, Well, well I, guess I guess she didn't, didn't die, die after all. And she froze. Then she turned her back to me and started to shake and laugh uncontrollably. Really not sure what was up with the singing Disney princess, I walked off, and someone from Guidance came up to me before I got to the end of that hallway and said, Just, Just so, so you know, it's back, back today. Now, now she, she attempted, attempted suicide, suicide last week, week so we're meeting to discuss, discuss that after school. school. The timing on that was exactly wrong. So I really dreaded seeing the poor girl in class then. But when I did, she was smiling from ear to ear with a look that said, That was hilarious. You totally didn't know and said exactly the hilariously wrong thing, given the circumstances. I'm never letting you live this one down. 
Many years later, we're still connected on social media. I've taught in the high school where I work long enough to have known kids who grew up to kill other human beings and others who took their own lives and never did grow up. One of my students had an older brother who had taken his own life a couple of years before I taught at the school. The scars of his brother's act on the community were still deep and healing years later. Another kid I actually taught doing the same thing a year later only added to those scars. The majority of the concerns that these students have are, are non-scholarly. It's not mm-hmm. who you're teaching in history class and, and you know what war you're going to cover. It's nothing like that. It's you know worried about fitting in, worried about trying to plan your life, right? Like, you know, we tell kids you have to go to university and I'm older now and I've been to university for a long time now. And so, of course, I know, I think it's one in seven students end up failing out, changing majors or transferring to another university in the first year, right? Like it's not even a little bit uncommon to get there and realize this isn't what I thought it would be. And that's okay. Uh, you know, I, I think once you get to university, we it's very well embraced. But in high school, at least in the high school experience I went through, we didn't really have people saying that to us, that, like, it's okay to start over. It's, you know, you better be going and looking up what university programs you're going to apply to and taking the classes to prepare and whatever. I've been trying to tease them about that. And one girl was talking about, you know, what she wanted to do. And I said, well, you're 50 and you have to decide all of that today because you can't change any of it for the rest of your life. And she kind of got my point that we're forcing her to make her life path of whether she intends to go to university or not, or what kind of program when she's 15 years old. And that's a little crazy. Now, a weird question is now you're an adult, you have a very explicable situation. They tell the doctor, the doctor knows what's going on. You've been overworking as an adult in an academic setting. Mm -hmm. A thought that occurs to me is to wonder, so you're in grade 10, maybe a vacation wouldn't have worked then. Mm -hmm. because it's almost like what you needed a break from then was puberty and growing up and mature, like everything was changing and there's no escape from that. So I Mm -hmm. I know like, it's weird that you mentioned that if you were to ask me, when was I most suicidal? I would Mm -hmm. say the year that I was between 16 and 17, right? Which is like grade 11 and 12, because we went for an extra year of high school, but it's more or less the same period of time. Mm -hmm. And it's, um, I think it's safe to say that there's no rest for someone that age from all the change and stress right. and the things weighing down on you. And the fact that you don't know how to engage with life or the world or people, everything seems wrong, which is why mm-hmm. I think like telling them that society is against them. I, I don't know that I want to tell them that. Yeah. I, I, I think you're, I think you're very right about that. Um, that that's not going to be very helpful for them. I think too, you, you, uh, we've talked about this before their brains are not fully developed like they don't they 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 cannot process what they're going through um you're right on I track think, so by the time that you get your phd your brain should be about done by that point oh hopefully yeah um, <laughs> yeah that's true and not easy school i don't imagine like a school that's mm. quite demanding of your time and energy it's demanding of my time and energy, yes, but a lot of that is because I allow it to be. If I take things easier, if I'm easier on myself, then school would be a different story. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm confident in my abilities to like coast through school if I'm if I were okay with just coasting. That's what I did. I should be. I wasn't okay with it, but that's what I did. I don't recommend it. 
I, I think that would be a good thing for me because Maybe. I have a history of just like not uh, of placing my academic achievements above my personal health and safety. Because mm-hmm. we, we all know various people who have taken their own lives. Um, what does that do to everybody who knew you? What does it give them to deal with the rest of their life? I'm not trying to damn Doug for this. I'm just saying that it's a thing, isn't it? You have to deal with that your friend killed himself. And, and it's the the first, you know, the, the what we grew up with in the meeting is not quite as bad as the Catholics, but it's like, um, you know, somebody who commits suicide, well, they probably, you know, that they're on the level of Judas mm-hmm. uh, and Saul. They're you're likely not going to see them again um, in the afterlife. We we were taught so fairly have, overtly that they were going to hell. We were we were pretty much told that they yeah, were going to hell. Pretty much told you couldn't commit suicide and and not go to hell. Remember um, the verse? No, which one was that? No murderer shall enter the kingdom of heaven. Oh, so that that falls under murder. Yeah, self murder. To deal with it, the mother of the student I hadn't taught, who took his own life before I worked there, not the one I taught there, who did the same thing, found a way to try to deal with this impossible hurt that had been done to her. She decided that her son would never have done this to himself, only he'd been smoking marijuana. And she would visit schools and give talks, telling teens that if they smoked marijuana, they might end up taking their own lives. I was skeptical of that message and worried how our students, many of whom are already done their smoking lots of pot phase before they even reach high school, might take it, but recognized how healing it was for her to show a slideshow of happy pictures of her deceased boy and tell teens about him and what had happened. She was putting her confusion and hurt into words and, in fact, into a story, doing what Jay Semko described of putting that stuff out there and having people respond favorably. It is, in the final analysis, a healing performance. The bereaved mom decided to hold a charity run to raise money for awareness of teenage mental health issues. Fantastic. Now, absolutely nothing short of a pursuing bear is going to get me to go, like, run anywhere, but there was supposed to be some outside entertainment with singing and so on, and I was happy to volunteer to do that. They scheduled me late, so late, in fact, that when I was to go on, people had, by and large, gone home. The prospect of tuning my guitar and going up on the outdoor stage and singing songs into the wind for no one didn't feel very appealing, so I asked what they wanted, and they wanted me to play anyway. So I did. I like to close with a strong, moody song, and I had just about quit singing Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah back then as it was getting very overplayed. But I couldn't think of anything else on the spot, was feeling lazy, so I sang it. Now... The words of hallelujah are not about suicide or death or loss, nor are they about hope or heaven or anything like that. In fact, the various permutations of the lyrics and the various versions of it seem to all be presenting the very Leonard Cohen opinion that when one is tempted to gasp, Hallelujah! Praise Praise and and thanks thanks be unto the the Lord Lord God, God, whether it is in the midst of religious or sexual ecstasy, it's really the same orgiastic experience being expressed. The tune, though... The tune is a way of letting non-Christian people like Leonard Cohen have the emotional experience of a hymn without requiring their religious belief and membership in a religious tribe of any kind. Just the emotional experience of a hymn, the sound of a hymn, with no ecclesiastical strings attached. And sounding like a real hymn, too, not just modern church music, which sounds good for selling life insurance and incontinence aids in a painfully sincere tone. Faith was strong, but you needed proof. Saw her bathing on the roof, her beauty in the moonlight.
kitchen chair she broke your throne she cut your hair from your lips she drew the hallelujah 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 Right from about the first chorus of Hallelujah, the bereaved mother came to the very foot of the stage and stood there, mostly just the two of us, looking up at me as I tried not to play any wrong chords or get any lyrics wrong. And she cried. I sang, and she sobbed. Tears rolled down. That was overwhelming. An audience of one or two with eye contact is so much more stressful than an audience of one or two hundred without eye contact. And the mother thanked me way too much for doing something I'd done casually and without thought and nearly didn't do at all. Years later, when I randomly encountered her, the bereaved mom told me how much it meant to her that I had played that song for her right then. Songs are powerful, whether you wrote them or not, and people get out of them or don't get out of them all kinds of things you can't predict and have no control over. Sometimes they give someone permission to feel a certain way and know others have felt it before and that they're not alone, and that makes them feel better. That even works with suicidal ideation, a song letting people know that they're not the only one who thought and felt this way, and they're not alone. Sometimes it makes people feel a little bit better. Because songs are putting random, formless thoughts and feelings into carefully structured rows of words, and then packaging them up to sing to people. And poems are the same, only with spoken word. You in the book, the poetry book, and, you know, how's that different? Like, because you're taking your words and instead of singing them, you're putting them on paper for people to read. That must be really different. Puts a spotlight on those words. Oh, yeah. It really, it, it shines every sort of uh, spot that either doesn't work or needs to be changed a bit. Or then this is to me as, mm -hmm. as the writer. That's how I feel about it. When you see the lyrics that are in the, in the, in the book, most of them, you know, I had to kind of edit a little bit. I had to do some work to make them look, to read be better as a poem, mm -hmm. you know, rather than simply just the lyrics of the song. Not that that's a, uh, any lesser in many ways, but it's, but it's different. There's a lot more room for improvisation or, uh, lots of room to drift around when you're singing something as opposed yeah. to there it is printed on a page and you're yeah. seeing it and it's like, that's it. And in a book, it's pretty easy for somebody to just pick it up and flip through it and see it again. So, you know, with poetry, I guess I had to take a, another look at a lot of those lyrics and go, yeah, I think there's something here, but I need to make this either a better story because we're not hearing a guitar riff that happens at a certain time that, yeah. that says part of the story as well. Like when mm -hmm. you're hearing words and music together, they, they both are telling whatever the story is or whatever the emotion is you're trying to get across. They, they both ultimately have to work together. Whereas with just writing it down, that's kind of been eliminated, you know, and it's funny too, because some of the poems, there was a few that I was kind of go, I, I don't know, this reads still reads like lyrics, no matter what I do with it, it sounds mm -hmm. like a song. 
and you can tell with the you know the rhythm of the you know like you could just it's sing songy like that whereas other ones are a lot more abstract and really not uh not necessarily following a rhythm or following a a path that way so but yeah it is definitely a different thing and it was a lot of work actually regarding the book in terms of revisiting almost everything that I did, either a standalone poem or a, or a song lyric mm-hmm. and trying to improve, trying to edit, tried to uh, make it look good on the page so that people would get the correct, or at least the, the impression I would like to try and convey to them, at least to a certain extent. Although a lot of the poems are really open to interpretation that way. You know, mm-hmm. I've left them kind of not necessarily with, with closed pages on them and stuff like that. So, when I teach, I often let students anonymously submit a poem to me for me to read to the class and have them discuss. They get to sit there and anonymously listen to their peers discuss their work. When teenagers in particular write poems, they are usually a way of dealing with dark thoughts and feelings. Here is a former student of mine reading a poem of hers, the second half of which is about living with depression. Feeling fully alive is being in the vastness of nature. The quietness of the country when you can hear and feel your own heart beat. Feeling small, yet part of everything, connected, and writing, to be living and experiencing and observing all at the same time. To have the words flow out like a fast-moving river, getting swept away, moving so fast you have no choice but to chase them, flow with them. Living death is a string of days that are all the same doing the bare minimum to get through, going through the motions, not present, not connected, devoid of any joy. And then the bare minimum becomes lying in bed for a day, maybe more, feeling only dread when the sun touches your face through the window that you have no energy to close. Nothing matters. Nothing is good. Nothing is bad. Everything is just nothing. Depression is living death. Let's look in the Wicked Mailbag. A one, a two, a one, two, three, four. Walking to the Wicked Mailbag, opening the Wicked Mailbag. What's in the mailbag today? Let's look in the Wicked Mailbag. As to thoughts of one's own mortality, freed from fear of death by embracing atheism, Miriam says... Death, that is, being dead, doesn't bother me. I will cease to exist as I once had not started to exist. The process of dying is not a pleasant one, as the relinquishing of life is not pleasant, but I have the use of these atoms for a finite time, and I'm glad of that. Freed from fear of death by embracing a belief in an afterlife, Gloria says, I am very aware of the passage of time. I think I cling to life. I am greedy for it. Yet my hope is to die in the same way that I gave birth, with acceptance. Acceptance of labor can't be understated. Surrender, voluntary surrender at death, is courage, in my opinion. I find it very hard, especially as a nurse, when Christians beg and plead for healing at the end of life. I can give my theological take on death, but I'm not sure it's what you're looking for. I'm not banking on heaven. My hope is in the resurrection. I asked my mother, who has dementia, if she would have any last words. She immediately said yes. Adios, amigos. That was it. Debbie, no relation, says, 
The older I get, the more I think about death, mine and my loved ones. I have a grandma who is 95 and is still very active. She says the Lord isn't done with her yet. I just hope to outlive my mom. She has seen too much death. My dog gets me up each morning. But I'm always curious, too, to see what the next piece of the puzzle will be in my life. That keeps me going. Shalomi Homi says, I do think about death. Not a ton, but every now and then. I want people to be able to say that I made a difference and that the world was a better place because I was here. People saw God more clearly. Despair was overcome with hope. Darkness, falsehood was dispelled with light and truth. That's what I understand God has invited us all to. That's why I get up in the morning. If that's going to be true, then there's work to do. Jane says, I have no problem with the idea of dying for myself. I feel nothing at the idea I could get hit by a bus and die tomorrow. For my kids, however, I do worry about whether or not they'll be ready to go on without me when I do go. Sandy on Facebook says about death concerningly, I ache for it. Gordy comments rather smugly, Death is a part of life. I made my peace with it long ago. Lori says, I think about it nearly every day. Half the time I don't like the idea because I want more of a chance to be happy before I die. And the other half, I want it to come soon because I think I won't get any more chances to be happy. What keeps me getting up each day? Inertia, I guess. Elaine remarks on the timing of my asking this question online right when she's thinking about it. She says, I'm reading Raymond Moody's Life After Life, Betty Eady's Embraced by the Light, as well as other books related to both. Bass-playing punker Kim, my homegirl, uh, my home assembly girl from back in the day, talks about the strength of creating your own little community once you've left or been kicked out of the one you grew up in. We were living in a building that, like, me and my friend got an apartment there, and apartment would come up, and then another couple of friends would get one, and eventually it was, like, all, pretty much all the apartments in this old, it was like an old Victorian hotel. It's since been torn down, and a very ugly building has been built in its place. Mm. Um, but it's just, like, a really great, both my band members at the time, I was in a band before, like a motorcycle, they lived in the building, so we'd just be at each other's houses, and... You know, someone I went to, my one of my best friends who I'd gone to college with for photography was living there, and we'd do things together. Uh, my friend Jill, who we later formed like a motorcycle, was living there. And just like a lot of artists kind of like trying to just make it work and have a good time, you know. And we were young, so we weren't thinking about money or like thinking about all that sort of stuff that you get more stressed out about as you get older. We were just kind of like doing shit and like, love and life, you know, and I was very fortunate to fall, you know, where I did. It sounds like you knew what to do also. Um, I'm exactly the kind of person who would live in a building and not say hi to anybody because I didn't feel like confident enough to say hi. And then you end up, and also there's a scene. So I don't think I've ever lived in a building where the other people were musicians. Um, there's always other people, right. but that's never happened. I, I did a lot of open stages in Ottawa and that's, Ottawa had like blues jams and yeah. Ottawa had folk open stages and that's really all that there was it was the 90s too the 90s yeah. were something <laughs> yeah when I moved to Halifax there was a really interesting thing happening here it was like not really like a noise scene but almost like a it was a very like hipster like garage noise sort of scene going on and not too many people from that scene went on to have any big commercial success but it was really inspiring to be like, hey, I can do that. Like, right. I can do that. You know, mm -hmm. I can get up there and do that. And it was like, good. Like, this shit was really good. It was very artistic. It was like, 
something I'd never seen before, but it also, I worked at my craft and I got better and, you know, things progressed, but there, it was something really interesting where like anyone who wanted to make art or like make music, you could do it. And there was like an audience for it. And there was little collectives and all kinds of interesting things going on. And, and it, it made you feel like you could be an artist and be respected, you know, even if you didn't make a million dollars ever right. in your life. You know? The things that were awesome that you described um, is all the community. So that's what I didn't have. Like to begin with, I was doing music yeah. and I didn't know anybody who was doing it. And, and around here, I actually yeah. found it quite difficult to meet people who were on the same page at all as me. Like, yeah, I don't know what it is with the East Coast. Um, my sister's ex-husband is connected with Anne Murray's nephew, Dale Murray. I don't know. He seems, know you, you know, Dale Murray. <laughs> I know Dale Murray. Yeah. Um, I'm friends with him and his wife, Christina Martin. I, I've had a couple of conversations with Dale be, just because he would come to Almont where I was living. And here's what I don't get. I don't get how like my, my uh, sister's ex-husband is from Almont. I used to live there. And what I don't get, like, as far as I know, Dale Murray is, he's like a professional and he'll just decide he's going to work with someone from Ontario. It's amazing to me. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, he's the it's, best. It's not money at all either, isn't it? It's no. just sort of like he wants to work with you. And yeah. uh, I love collaboration and I've I've not gotten nearly enough of it. When I came here, you know, I didn't know that I was going to be a musician. I obviously loved music, um, but, you know, I, I wanted to be a photographer and I wanted to do all these things and just slowly found my way back. I just met the right people and I met some really good friends who really like helped me through and like, a bunch of people I knew were living in this building and it was amazing. And my friend was cleaning out her closet and she was like, Hey, like I found this bass guitar in my closet. Do you want it? Mm -hmm. And I'd never played bass before. And I said, well, sure. Great. You know, I had, I was playing guitar, playing keyboards, like had a drum set, but for whatever reason I didn't have a bass and she gave me the bass and I just, it was like a very natural Thing for me is started writing songs on it right away. I immediately made a band with some of my friends and yeah, Halifax is so great. We used to have this thing called Rockin' for Dollars every Monday night and you would call in on the phone at 7 o'clock every Monday night and if you could get through, they'd give you a 15 minute slot. And so whoever, you could be anyone, you call and you get through, you get this 15 minute slot and you go and you would play here 15 minutes and you could do whatever you wanted, and it didn't matter. And at the end, you'd spin a wheel and you'd win money of prizes. And it was just so That's much awesome. fun. And all the punk bands, like great, but like big bands would come in and they'd play it, and nobody's. And like that's how I learned. That's how I learned to rock out. Going every Monday, just going and playing with my band or playing with whoever, and just like trying it and being on the stage. Like I'd write three songs, and I'd be like, "All right, we gotta go. We gotta go play. Like we gotta do this," you know about that. And I also have some close friends that are in recovery as well, who I stay in touch with. Yeah. It helps to just talk and it helps to relate, you know And I mean? I find that with mental health, you know, if you just talk about it, you just get it out in the open and 
you know, I do like the slogan, the bell, let's talk. I mean, I, I just yeah. really feel that's a great slogan. It's, yeah. it's very truthful and fits exactly what, what needs to happen within that world, you know? And it, for me, it, I have to save something that's play somehow. Yes. And I think that the more that you can find play in your life, the more that you find joy because play is you it's, you're not getting play right you're playing yeah troy is someone who like michael vetter knows how to make almost any situation fun he cannot bear to remain bored and so he entertains people he recognizes that my podcasting writing books my toying with old songs and collaborating with other people is a form of play that suits me more than going jogging or watching or playing football ever would um one of the songs that I always loved of yours, and it was a complete joke in your case, you always thought, and that was Hello Down There. Yeah. It's sad because it's about Michael Vetter, and so I wanted to include him, and yet he's not hearing what I'm hearing, so he does it his own way, which I think is interesting, and the version that I put in the podcast, I kind of like because it's elaborate, but just me grabbing a guitar and playing it is kind of more fun in a, in a way. Yeah, that one stuck with me. I have, I still have a copy. I asked you to give me a MP3 of it years ago. I still have And that's it. the one that yeah. Mish did the backhanded compliment where I played him a version of it, and he said, oh, you're starting to learn about melody. And I'm thinking, like, I'm in a band with you. That's not a very nice thing to say. The other Mish memory was when you were playing the same slide part for the Vulture song, oh, yeah. and uh, you played it, I don't know, in my memory, you played it for months a certain way. Two, three, four... And you asked about something very, like, is that a good tone for it or whatever? And we said, yeah, that's a good tone. And Mish is like, yeah, but don't play this with the whole song because it sounds like shit. It's like, whoa, that's too harsh, Mish. Yeah, kind of. And, uh, that, I mean, that happened a few times, I think. That's kind of when someone moves straight from passive all the way to aggressive <laughs> yeah, without you, any, nothing in the middle. They, that is literally the um, in, embodiment of the, the common saying today is that escalated quickly. Yes, it definitely escalated. <laughs> it just went... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, that I, I made the joke that we should do uh, a Canadian jackass where we do, like, really low-key things. Right. Because of the general impression that Canadians are extremely low-key, passive, or polite. And we would do the same, like I suggested we put carts away mm -hmm. and then put play the same, you know, Canadian jackass with the, the guitar riff. And we go and put the carts and away. And we put the carts away type of thing. Right. Or or if we push people in a cart, we do it really slowly and carefully. Right. You know, everything we do is extremely... And use hand signals before turning left or right. Yeah, then, like it, just to play up this idea that Canadians are really polite or, yeah, we would do something and not say please. You know, that would be our... That's Generation X to the... The core is how ridiculous can we do something with a straight face and eventually find that despite ourselves, we're taking it deadly seriously with me, with music. That's a bunch of it. It's like, I'm going to, what's the most ridiculously delightful idea I can think of? And then I find two hours later that I'm desperately trying to sing like Miss Piggy to a hymn or something. <laughs> it's true. It's true. 
desire No one else will do There's nothing else could take your place Your embrace. Alright, everybody, sing along now. Help me find the way. Bring me back to you. You're all I want. You're all I ever needed. You're all I ever needed. You're all I want. You are an excellent example of uh, a funny idea gets way out of control. But honestly, many times the end result is fantastic. Your uh, South Park church split thing is a perfect example of something that is taken so far beyond you can't even equivalent it to the original emotional response Mm -hmm. it was tied to. Because that's how long it took you to do. Mm -hmm. You got other people to do voices. You came up with dialogue. I mean, like... Enough of this, Terence. I'm leaving. No, Philip, I'm kicking you out. You're an NIV reading puppet kisser. No, I'm leaving. No, I'm kicking you out. Terence, I'm taking Christ with me. Philip, Christ's staying with us. You're a tyrant, Terence. You're worldly, Philip. You're following your own personal agenda, Terence. You're off scriptural ground, Philip. I'm very sorry, Philip, but. I'm kicking you out. Dear Egypt. Do you see that we were 100% absolutely right in what we absolutely 100% had to do to that blue sniffing rotten liar Philip and his stupid friends? If you do, then you're cool. But if not, then you're a bunch of stick around that too. It's enough and crying. Yeah. Yeah. There can only be one Lord's table, of course, Philip, and you're not it. I'm the table. I'm the table. I want to be the table. I'm a lovely table. Or perhaps a settee. That's something I can still periodically watch and laugh my ass off at because... It seems so clunky to me now. Like, it's one of my very first efforts. Yeah, I mean, it's totally clunky, but it has... You know, my favorite part of it was I needed to make the, the sound effect of a church building splitting in two halves. And you can't just get that. So I took two bricks... And I leaned a microphone against one of the bricks and slowly dragged the other brick across the the brick. So it gives that grating, brick-scraping sound. Um, Do you remember uh, after I moved out and I had like a dream of a song and I recorded it and sent it to the radio and Bill went to work and heard it on the radio? To say, he likes to say vagina, vagina. I like to say, he likes to say vagina, vagina. I'm told men do not like the word. Well, I can say that is absurd. A bald face lie, not partly furred vagina. I like to say, he likes oh, I do remember that. Yes, he was kind of mad, but but <laughs> grudgingly respecting. Me. Yeah, like it was, it was, it was magical. Like it's, it's funny and weird at the same time that the the songs that seem to be your least amount of effort and like less seriousness mm-hmm. tend to be the ones that people go oh I love that song they do and and I'm not I don't think I'm a very silly playful energetic cheerful person 
but every now and then a, a sense of play causes a song that is pure play that, that's very unlike me, and yet those land best with people. The author, Ernest Hemingway, wrote out his dark ideas, but eventually, suffering repeated concussions and alcoholic dementia, writing to a professional standard began to elude him. Missing the ability to create art with it, he simply ate one of his shotguns. I know with me, I talk, sing, and create rather than commit suicide. Of course, middle-aged and elderly people, particularly men, take their own lives all the time. There's a long list of male celebrities about my age who've done this during the last few decades. Despite this, it feels to me like poems or lyrics about existential angst and suicidal ideation feel or are going to be viewed as adolescent, no matter what you do with them. Of course, the song for this episode was written when I was 19 or 20, but still... I think the naked honesty of it, without a whole lot of art and snark or sneer to hide behind, is part of what makes one think of teenagers. I guess I'm fine with that. One, two, one, two, three, four. Why not dig the blade in just a little bit deeper? Let the pain and fear dig. Leak out. One, two, one, two, three, four. Why not dig the blade in just a little bit deeper? Let the pain and fear leak, leak out. Once we had drums down, I messed with various of the songs, including this one, and kind of got into a groove of making this old, old song of mine tell a story a two-way conversation using different acoustic guitar and vocal treatments. The idea was to make it sound deceptively simple, to not let on that I was doing a whole bunch of stuff, but do a whole bunch of stuff nonetheless. I did pretty much the whole song, apart from George's drums, on a Saturday. The concept of the song is that the creepy, persistent, nagging voice advocating for suicide starts out very quiet and tentative with a strong no response and vocal harmony and guitars immediately answering it at first. No! But that with each verse, the nagging voice grows and grows and is joined by more and more voices and guitars while the no response loses a bit each chorus until by the end of the song, it's the little lone voice. So the no choruses would get weaker and lose parts while the suicidal ideation verses would get stronger and gain parts throughout by stealing them from the verses. Various traitorous instrument parts defect to the dark side. George tactfully told me that all of this sounded like something that might work in your head, but not down to a recording musically, probably. I decided to try to do it anyway. The original concept, of course, was to have a lovely, attractive female voice singing the parts urging the singer towards suicide, but even without telling them the subject matter, my sister and niece both firmly but kindly expressed their sincere disinterest in singing on any of my stuff as they are up to their own things. My niece, for example, has been singing more like this of late. On the Saturday in question, I had fun with vocal harmonies for the first no chorus. No, no, strong, drag on through pain and suffering. 
No, it's a lot of pain, but at least, at least my life is mine. Then it was just about stripping out more and more of them with each passing chorus, and about adding in more creepy, suicidey ones with each verse, to make them sound creepier. And trying to make it sound like they were inside my head, I sang with the mic stuck in the corner of my bathroom beside the sink, and my face right up against it. If you sing into a corner, it gives a particularly constricted, rich, full, close to your head sound. Why not just swallow them and lay your body down? Then I sang a couple of passes with the mic actually cradled against my throat. To really, really sound uncomfortably close, if not right inside the listener's head. A tired soul floats away in a foggy chemical mist. I tried a backward reverb on George's snare, which kind of make it sound like he's doing a lot of drum rolls that he wasn't doing. And this gave me the idea of putting a backward verb on the throat vocals too. Why not take a step, just a little bit farther, out where all the I think Bill helped me write the bridge to this one back in the day, as I wasn't very confident about changing keys mid-song and then going back into the original key again afterward. I found it hard to know what note to sing when the key had suddenly changed entirely, and then again once the bridge was over. The first verse is about being seventeen and pressing a razor blade against my inner forearm and thinking about using it as an exit strategy. And as I'd already played guitar with a razor blade for the song coming up on the next podcast episode, I decided to very carefully use one again for the first verse of this one. What can I say? I'm very method. I use the razor blade pick on my acoustic with the Nashville stringing this time, though, with all of the strings that go only on a twelve-string on a six-string, and the usual six-string strings missing from the six-string. Kind of liked how it sounded, so I just played with the razor blade on the Nashville tune guitar throughout the song. Then, when I did regular six-string acoustic guitar parts for bits of the song, I used the razor blade again for the sake of consistency. Two Nashville strung acoustics mixed in with the two regular acoustics sounded okay, all strummed very carefully. With a razor blade, I had to remember not to stick in my mouth when reaching for the computer to change a recording setting, like one might do with a plastic guitar pick.
I couldn't really strum my guitar with an OC Transpo City bus for the second verse, of course, nor record myself playing guitar while jumping off a building for verse 3, so that was the limit. I detuned, slowed George's drums down digitally for just the last verse to sound more like a pharmaceutical overdose of some kind. You can hear the switch from normal to all drugged out here. Amusingly, when I tried digitally detuning the acoustic guitar an octave as well, the rough vocal that had bled into the guitar mic got detuned also. I'm keeping a bit of that in there, I thought, and I did. I broke out the harmonicas, which I sort of mostly stopped playing once I first learned to play guitar. I locked out that despite using a capo to change the key on the guitar, one of my three harmonicas just happened to be in the right key. And before you ask, yes, writing and Recording a song about suicide and having people listen to it is tremendously therapeutic. The idea is to sing about and not do it. Far better than the opposite. And once I have written and sung and recorded about it, far less likely to feel like doing it. Why not dig the blade in just a little bit deeper? The pain and fear and ache leak out. Look, there's a warmer look on the face of the reaper. Welcome you and take you, have no doubt. No, I heard, but I can see what you're up to. Starters, a secret 